0: Yes, of course. Burl Baron. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state of the art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, the following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am a legendary Burro Bear. The man who's not there is Howard Lapidus. He's in traffic. No, not the movie with uh, Benicio Del Toro. Although that would be an interesting career move. Could he uh, have been in the rock group? Yeah, the rock group, yeah. Yeah, he's a geologist. He'll be here soon. <laughs> Mark C.G. Boyer, our intrepid fact checker, is sitting next to me, fortunately on my blind side. And, <laughs> and on the phone... Well, thank you. We have Mike. Mike of Mike and Mike. Hiya, Mike. How you doing? Better and better every day in every way. And if that'll turn down the music, and if you speak up nice and loud, we can hear you loud and clear. Now, oh, uh, good. there you are, famous as ever.
1: <laughs> I don't know about that,
0: but... Well, not, not only do you, are you part of a team that does one of the finest uh, true crime podcasts in the world... And cut it out, please. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, stop it, please. We have enough trouble with Dan Zepanski. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> Although Dan is a big fan, I'm sure, of both of our programs. Pleasure to have you here. Uh, (coughs) Is that you or him? (laughs) I'll tell you what. We only have one of the mics on the mic because the other mic couldn't make it, but we do have this mic. Hi, Mike. Uh, How's it going? uh, Tell us, before we get into your two exciting books that are currently out with Wild Blue Press, uh, tell us a little bit about the great true crime podcast you do.
1: Well, I host a podcast called Criminology. It's a true crime podcast that's been out for about a year and a half. Um, we do seasons on large cases over several episodes. And season one, we did the Zodiac Killer. And season two, we did the Golden State Killer. And those are the two cases that we wound up... Writing
0: the books about. Ah, makes perfect sense. Makes sense to me. We've been doing this show for 10 years and people are still disgusted. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I was, you stop that. People think that's me, Mark. I, I read the reviews on iTunes. They think it's it says, me. The dirty old man who hosts the show is always coughing and fleming and all that. Well, good for them. <laughs> In fact, uh, I was just looking at iTunes and it said, you know, what the ratings were and there was like, Twice as many five-star reviews as one-star reviews, but what do you think they post up there for people to see? The one-star reviews? <laughs> <laughs> when they you say
1: how... to shoot for as many five-stars as possible, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, they say it takes five positive statements to make up for every one negative statement if you're in a relationship. And listeners, if you keep insulting me for being old and senile, it's really going to damage uh, our relationship here. But uh, I am pleased to say that uh, we got $48 now in our podcast fund. <laughs> I'm impressed. $48 we've earned doing our podcast huh? since it, we monetized it on uh, iTunes and Spotify and everything. Wow, cool. Matt, uh, how Matt, that Matt Allen, our man. producer, is already making big plans on how to spend that $48. And <laughs> he's going to buy cigars with it, I think. Oh, but I believe I get about 40, 40 bucks of that. Uh, yeah, at least. No, not at least I'm doing the math. Yeah. It's about forty two maybe forty two. No, forty eight. So I would be <laughs> around thirty eight dollars. Yeah. And what's the rest of it goes for Cheetos? Oh,
1: it goes to you.
0: Oh, it goes to me. Well good. I'm I'm entitled to at least how much is that? Three dollars and forty cents or something? No, it's about ten bucks. Hey, yeah. ten bucks to me is a lot of money. I'll
1: buy you a pack of six. Yeah, yeah
0: hell yeah. Good for my lungs. <laughs> so how did uh, Mike, uh, this is B- Mike Bumford of the famous uh, uh, folk rock group. Uh, <laughs> tell us about the other Mike, because he's not here. How did you hook up with him?
1: Well, uh, Mike Ferguson. I'm Mike Morford. Mike Ferguson uh, is my co-host. He hosted a podcast called True Crime All the Time, and True Crime All the Time Unsolved, which I was a fan of, and he's been around probably a year longer than I have. And I listened to his show, and we sort of started corresponding uh, talking about his show and he mentioned to me that he really was interested in the Zodiac case and I had done a lot of research and work with the Zodiac case we started talking and wondered what it might be if we put a podcast together about it and it started right from there, so it's pretty interesting and it's worked out well so
0: far. Well, great. Now, this, uh, on the Zodiac Killer, we've had a few different people on it. Probably you, you've you heard some of the shows, maybe, where you have different people talking about the Zodiac Killer, they have different theories, and that it's turned into an industry. You know, it's just like, as long as that thing is not definitely taken care of, you got, you know, it's like Jack the Ripper. <laughs> you can just keep cranking out books forever.
1: It's a, it's a never-ending supply of Theories and books and opportunities for people to make wild claims.
2: Didn't we have uh, somebody that claimed that was uh, one of the uh, uh, medical examiners was involved? I don't know. Yeah, he he brought he he was one of the authors of the, some of the letters.
1: Oh, uh, I, I know there was a guy named Thomas Horne that claimed there was no real Zodiac killer and that he, uh, you know, somebody or. or um, combination of people perpetrated a hoax and wrote some of the letters Um, that's that's one of the silliest theories i've ever heard so uh, no truth to that Uh, and i think most of the the crazy theories that you hear about are are probably not correct
0: it's hard to tell the crazy theories (laughs) from the real ones after a while because they all start having the the same degree of cultural validity you know if they get promulgated enough, people start going. Oh yeah, that's right. Saddam Hussein was the Green River killer. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah there's there's some strange ones out there. Some are stranger than others. That's for sure.
0: There's also like I was saying with Jack the Ripper, you get the same sort of thing. Uh, I really got a kick out of the book, uh, The Hand of a Woman or A Hand of a Lady, whatever it was. I think it's by Neil yeah. O'Gara, mm-hmm. where uh, he says that the uh, the Jack the Ripper was this female human person. Oh which I thought was a very—and and he built the case up uh, with some pretty interesting research and logic to it that most people went poo-poo-poo-poo, I am the walrus, <laughs> they didn't—you know, they weren't buying it. But uh, at least I thought he built an interesting case out of it. So. Oh, we, we had somebody on that
2: uh, found uh, oh, images— Yes, images Vincent Van Gogh was the— uh, <laughs> Vincent Van Gogh's Goh.
0: art. Yeah, yeah, he believed that Vincent Van Gogh was the uh, Jack the Ripper. <laughs> yeah, I know. Because
2: there, so if you look at some of his art, you can find, hidden in the art, the actual crime scene where the body was late to, was uh, left.
0: Now, that seems like he's been doing a lot of really good acid.
1: <laughs> yeah, there was a, there was a crazy Zodiac theory put forth by a guy that claimed when you microscopically looked at the zodiac letters you could see little faces uh in the, the ink of i don't know if it was supposed to be his victims or faces that he had hidden in there it's one of the most ridiculous theories that i've ever heard and, and
0: he's been getting some parts. good stuff find out who his supplier is
1: <laughs> yeah there's got to be somebody out there that's enjoying selling to these guys because they're they're coming up with some crazy stuff
0: Oh, it gets, gets stranger all the time. Cause it you, I mean, but from a marketing standpoint, it's kind of a blessing. You know, I mean, if you want to write Zodiac Killer books, if you want to write Jack the Ripper books, you can just come up with all manner of stuff. In fact, on a sideline of this, and Howard Lapidus, manager of the star, and I am the star, uh, just showed up. <laughs> Hi, Howard. there. Hi. Welcome uh, from the, your adventures in traffic with Benicio Del Toro. And uh, we're glad to have you here. We're talking to Mike of Mike and Mike, who do uh, uh, the True Crime uh, g- Criminology podcast. Is that right? Yeah, they've been doing it for about a year, a year and a half, Mike? Year and a half. Year and a half. And uh, they, they take a, a case such as, say, the, the Zodiac, and they'll do an entire season on that, where we will do 50 minutes. <laughs> Call it good. They get, they get in-depth it on it. So.
1: to really boil down some of these cases into 50 minutes. It's- there's so many parts to it that it's it's hard to get it down in the in the one episode
0: sometimes. That that is absolutely true which is why we have many conflicting uh, conflicting uh, theories. In fact, we had one guy on who wanted to argue with the other fellow we had on the week before. We said, "Well, we we can't exactly set that up because we're a fairly cheap operation. We just have one phone line." So <laughs> you can't exactly, you know, call it and fight with a guy over your differing, bizarre theories on the Zodiac Killer. Have you come to any conclusion on that at all, on the Zodiac?
1: No, I, I like everybody else, I have my, you know, my own theory that the Zodiac was a uh, alone, not just some guy that wanted attention, didn't get much attention in his everyday life. And that's sort of who I think he was. I don't think he was a rich businessman. I don't think he was... Uh, you know some people say he's like was Charles Manson and you know all these different theories i, I just think he was a normal uh or not normal probably that's not the best word but it not
0: the best word no. <laughs> a, a
1: run of the mill kook that that just wanted some attention and found a way to get it uh, you know I have favorite suspects um but you know I don't subscribe to any of these crazy theories about different uh uh odd theories being responsible for the, the case.
2: Is he still alive?
1: Uh, my suspect isn't, and, you know, whether my suspect's the, the guy or not, I think that whoever he is probably isn't alive. Yeah,
2: well, you know, but I always find it fascinating that that they stop at some point. Serial killers don't stop. Yeah, that's the I... If they're dead saying. or in prison. So well, there has it, to be a reason why they why the crime yeah, stops. he's
0: dead or he's in prison.
1: <laughs> well... With, with the Zodiac in particular, he started out killing, but shifted his priorities to writing letters to get attention. And soon he realized that he could get attention just from writing the letters, and
0: not having the, the to kill people. Took
1: huh? a, a back seat to the uh, to the letter writing.
0: See, you know, I I write to get attention, but I've just apparently been writing the wrong stuff. I should be writing threatening letters. Well, you know, maybe you should try writing to make money god what a unique theory <laughs> i bet you know true i mean how many other i mean you're you're a true crime author now mike how many other jobs that pay as low as being a true crime writer come with death threats
1: <laughs> well lucky i haven't got any death threats yet you know i do get some kooky emails and things of that nature but no death threats yet so um, then again, I'm not on the same level as, as far as you as uh, uh, writing books. For, I don't know how many you've written offhand, but uh, we've just got the two out. So,
0: um, Well, wait till you've got about 18 or 19. Then you'll start getting the death threats. Yeah, there I, you go. Okay. I, I wrote a blog post this week about true crime authors getting death threats because I, I haven't had any lately, but I do get them from time to time. And the only ones who are getting death threats now are our guests, not you necessarily. But <laughs> thanks. <laughs> but well, hang in there. Uh, yeah, have way, way long enough. We had one one guest, Kenny uh, Kenji Gallo, uh, who had two attempts on his life prior to coming on the show, and then uh, uh, what's her name, Vegas Ragdoll, get a phone call that yeah, to tell that crime bitch that she's dead if she, you know, if she comes on your show. I mean, this is from the guy who supposedly was on the grassy knoll when uh, Kennedy was assassinated. So I was on the grassy knoll. You were on the grassy knoll? Yeah, I was seven years old, but I was on the grassy knoll. Did hey, you wave? Yeah. Yeah, good. Uh, so uh, it does happen occasionally. I actually did, uh, well, hopefully, something that you wouldn't have happened, Mike, and that is that someone showed me a bullet with my name on it, which oh. I thought was a great piece of memorabilia. <laughs> you know? What was that all about? That was all about something. And the weird thing did was I- is the... ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and... uh, Firearms. Firearms, yeah. Uh, They got hold of me and they said, "Um, Mr. Bear, is it true that uh, so-and-so showed you a bullet with your name on it? And I said, yeah, how do you know that? I mean, that was really weird that they knew that. And uh, I said, yeah. And he said, well, come down and talk to us. That was uh, Gary Friedman, the guy who showed me the bullet with my name on it and the gun that the bullet went into. I don't know how that was supposed to impress me.
2: So what happened after that? Was that
0: the last you heard? Uh, that's the last I heard about the bullet. Uh, not the last I heard about him. He cut an interesting deal, allegedly, and that was in order to get his permit to do the big rock festival that he did, uh, he had to set up to have the people supplying the marijuana for the festival get arrested. All right. That fair trade. You know, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you got your own theories on the Zodiac Killer, Mike. Tell us... Tell us about the uh, this California killer guy. Oh, the Golden State. State. Golden State. Golden yeah. State. Yeah.
1: Well, the Golden State killer was somebody that operated after um, the Zodiac. You know, he started in uh, 1974, as if I say, a ransacker in, in Visalia, California, and then he moved to the Sacramento County area, and rape and murder uh, different people random attacks during the night you know he would tie up the couple's stack plates on the backs of the male victims and uh, he would assault the wives, rape the wives and disappear into the middle of the night and then eventually his crimes turned to murders he would start bludgeoning people to death Jeez, um,
0: don't invite this guy over
1: yeah, he was a really nasty guy, and his crimes spanned over a decade. He's got at least 50 rapes, a dozen murders, and uh, hundreds of break-ins.
0: Too. Hell of a resume.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, as, a, as far as a bad guy goes, it is. And, you know, the shocker came earlier this year when the case was solved, and they arrested Joseph D'Angelo, who turned out to be a cop. Jeez. And here he was putting his... Uh, he was in charge of some anti-burglary uh, programs. Here he's putting his anti-burglary program to use to break into people's houses. Um, and it's, it's it's coming out that he was stalking and attacking some of these people during his shifts, most likely, while he was working.
0: Did he have a partner he was working with?
1: I, I don't know that. I don't think so. I think it would be kind of hard for him to be doing what he was doing if he had a partner. but. You know, if you look at the hours that he was dedicating to calling people, harassing them, breaking into their house, attacking them, he would go into houses sometimes, uh, attack people, but before that he would go in and, and look around, steal stuff, move stuff. Uh, he'd leave a window ajar so he could come back later on. So he was spending hours and hours before and after the attacks. He'd call people before and after, breathe heavily into the phone, just Jeez. to scare them and harass them. And then when they finally caught this guy this year, it turned out that he was a cop.
0: Wow, I wonder if Internal Affairs had been checking up on him. They had and any somebody, clue.
1: I don't know who's checking up on him, but somebody missed the ball because he, uh, he slipped through the cracks and... It wasn't until DNA caught up with him that they were able to figure out who he was.
2: Well, he did get caught shoplifting. And yeah, he did,
1: he did get caught shoplifting, and that's initially what got him fired from being a
2: cop. Right.
1: Uh, he had shoplifted some dog repellent. Um, <laughs> oh and I
2: think it was a hammer or something.
1: A hammer and some uh, dog repellent, and the dog repellent is is you know, it's a theory, but I, I think that was to keep him from getting attacked by any kind of guard dogs that they might have, um, you know, or perhaps not detecting his scent. It was a way that he could, you know, get away with um, dealing with dogs. And and the hammer, who knows, he bludgeoned several people. Maybe he was going to uh, bludgeon some using that hammer, but um, just the fact that he went that far and made it that long, and that one little thing, that one arrest uh, for their shoplifting charge is what stopped him from being a cop. And it wasn't long after that, I think it was a month later, he started killing people on a regular basis. Uh, so that might have been the, the straw that uh,
0: broke the camel's back. Yeah, you wonder, you know, we, we were talking uh, about a month or so ago about uh, Frank Gerardo, about his book Burned, where the guy was uh, uh, in the fire department and he was an arsonist good career move uh, they didn't allow him to be a cop because he didn't pass the psychological tests Then they don't share that with the fire department so they took him on in the fire department I wonder how this guy did on his psychological test to become a cop in the first place
1: you know I don't know there's there's some things in his past as a child that his, parent, his father abandoned the family early on uh, he supposedly witnessed his sister being raped Um, so there's some things in his background that sort of he may have come into play to turn him into what he became and you know right early on as soon as he became a cop is when these crimes were going on and that started in Vassalia so some of the classes he was taking in college were you know to further advance his uh, police work but also you would think to help with his criminal activity um, because he was figuring out how to avoid avoid detection and, and not get caught and get better at what he was doing under the guise of doing it as a police officer, and here he's really doing it to, to become a better criminal.
2: Well, I fully suspect that um, all of the effort he made educationally uh, put him in a good position to uh, uh, convince... Uh, any uh, law enforcement agency to hire him.
1: That's true. Yeah, he definitely was building his resume, there's no doubt about that. And As I mentioned, one of the things that he was in charge of was anti-burglary uh, projects, and he would basically tell people how to keep their homes from being burglarized. Meanwhile, he's the one doing the, the burglarizing. <laughs> um, Jeez. Geez. It's just a, a really uh, crazy story. I'm sure it's going to be a movie at some point, and it, it'll be interesting to see what the movie is like. But you, you almost can't make up the story as, as it played out because it's just really compelling and mm. there's so many twists in it.
2: Yeah. And any feel for when the, the switch flipped and he went from leaving his victims to killing them?
1: It was, it was around the time that he was fired. In uh, 1979, towards the fall of 79 is when he was dismissed uh, from the police department, and he moved south and attacked a couple one night. And the couple, you know, he said, if you move, I'm going to kill you, and they, they cooperated, and, you know, he tied them up, and while they were laying there waiting for him to do something, he's they heard him heard him saying to himself, I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill him, almost as if he was working his way up to... Doing it, and they got scared at that point, and they took off, and they they bolted out the door, hopping, tied up, and he chased one of them down. The other one went out the other door, and he lost control of the situation. Um, and after that, none of the victims that ever he ever attacked ever lived after that.
0: No, he, he learned one. his lesson. That's like Robert Lee Yates, the Spokane serial killer. The first people he killed, he used a 357 Magnum and shot the uh, girl in the head while she was giving him head and uh... uh... by force not by choice and he soon learned you don't use a 357 to do that uh... He went to a 22 after that you know?
2: <laughs> just a tad messy
0: yeah uh, he would uh, have with him paper towels and a uh, plastic bag and as soon as he'd shoot him he'd put the paper towel over the wound and then the plastic bag over their head uh, to keep the mess down you know sure. cleanliness is important when you're a serial killer it is yeah Howard could attest to that yeah yeah he's in show business so, <laughs> so he knows all about these yeah, it's the same thing same thing same difference very perverse stuff <laughs> uh, this guy is really a piece of work the book was absolutely fascinating the Golden <laughs> State Killer just from Wild Blue Press is written by Mike and Mike and uh, basically adapted from their uh, very successful podcast called Criminology, and we're very proud of them, and we're giving them the True Crime Uncensored Award for Best Competing Podcast. <laughs> and once again, cut it out. Cut it out, cut it out. we have to have Dan Zapansky call you. <laughs> there's a lot of true crime podcasts now. Uh, when we first started, I don't think there were. We started, what, well, almost 11 years ago. What? And uh, we were kind of a strange phenomenon. Yeah, well, there's True Murder, and then there's The Two Chicks. The two chicks?
2: Like the Dixie Chicks? Yeah, the two chicks that do uh, their uh, <laughs> their female bent
0: crime show. Well, that makes sense, because uh, as you know, uh, true crime is basically a female-driven uh, yeah. genre, which is why we do it on Outlaw Radio, which is a male <laughs> demographic The concept, being trying to bring uh, men uh, into the true crime fold to buy more of our books. How, how's that going for us? Uh, it's, it's going well, actually. I think so. I'll, I can tell you when the next royalty check I get. I'll tell you how it's going. You'll be happy. Uh, see, now your your whole career has taken a new trajectory, Mike. Yeah. Now that you're a, not only a famous podcaster, but also a now a, an author. Hopefully well, soon. It's,
1: it's, it's definitely uh, interesting, and I get to talk with uh, interesting people like you guys, so that's that's one good side of it.
0: Wow. Ah, see, we're interesting, Howard. <laughs> It's about time. <laughs> yeah, we were waiting for Howard to get interesting. <laughs> we set a time limit. You have until January of 2020 to get interesting. <laughs> After that, you're doomed. <sighs> so, um, do we have a feel uh, for why
2: the crime stopped? Uh,
1: the Golden State Killer crimes? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, he... There was a a gap, 1981, he murdered a couple and then dropped off the map for five years. In 1986, he murdered again, came out of the the woodwork and murdered one more time, and that was the last time. Those two years, 81 and 86, were the years that his uh, wife gave birth to his daughters. Um, So I don't know what the reasoning was. I, I don't know if something about her being pregnant set him off somehow, Um, but it's interesting that the last two murders came the same two years that his daughters were born and maybe, who knows, maybe when his first daughter was born he tried to stop it and control himself Uh, and he did stop for those five years, but, you know, something about the time she got pregnant again in 1986, maybe something like that set him off and he struck again.
0: I mean, I was just looking at this list of uh, his, shall we say, criminal accomplishments. It's fairly horrifying. Uh, everywhere from Walnut Creek to Danville, uh, Modesto, San Ramon. I mean, this guy was—he was known by different names in different areas at different times.
1: Yeah, it's—it's it's really scary because you never knew where it was going to pop up, and. You know, he'd be in Sacramento for the most part, and people, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles away would say, well, we don't have anything to worry about, he's down in Sacramento, and then all of a sudden he shows Mm -hmm. up in Contra Costa County, and then people that are down in Santa Barbara County have no idea what's going on up north, and then he shows up there. And so he sort of bounced around all over the place, and they're still tracking what drove him to go to those areas when he did, uh, there's been some speculation that maybe he was in some se- some kind of security after his uh, firing from the police department, or he may have had some other kind of jobs, uh, but they're trying to retrace his tracks now to prepare for the trial that's going to be coming up. So
2: well, you know, what happened after 86?
1: So after 86, he you know, apparently went silent and didn't kill anymore. They... Thus far, haven't publicly connected him to any crimes after 1986.
0: That, that's um, uh, that's interesting because any time a serial killer is caught, every police department in the world, <laughs> you know, wants to clear their cases, and they get told, well, could he possibly have killed this person, this person, this person? Like with Robert Lee Yates, there was a, a, a transsexual right. murdered in Texas when he was there uh, as part of his military service, and then in Germany, about 25 women were murdered, and they think, well, maybe he did those also. So they're the ones trying to clear their cases. And then you also you have some killers who take credit, in quotes, for murders that they didn't do just because it boosts their resume. You know, like they're going to get hired on, you know, Killing with the Stars or something. Well <laughs> <laughs> you find yeah. that amusing. Yes, I do.
1: <laughs> and that was more the Zodiac. The Zodiac liked to take credit for things that he didn't necessarily do. But the uh, old state killer, Joseph D'Angelo, he seemed to, you know, in 1986 when he committed his last crime, he was... Uh, You know, that was 32 years ago, 33 years ago, and he was uh, 40 years old. Um, And I think when you start getting in your 40s, you can't do the physical things that he was doing. I mean, he was jumping fences, riding bikes, being chased by people, running from uh, people that were intercepting him, trying to catch him. So I think it became physically demanding for him that he probably couldn't do what he Had been doing before Um, When you get to that 40 age Which is where he was And then also you have the possibility that Perhaps you have a drop In you know Sexual uh, desire At that age And some of these crimes are sexually motivated uh, So maybe that Thrill or that desire to do what he was doing Was dropping off as
0: well at that age Have you seen the movie um, The Clove Witch Killer No no Uh, uh, with oh what's his name Mr. Black is that the name of the movie no Uh, uh, Kevin Costner where Kevin Costner plays the serial killer oh yeah yeah. uh, I I really enjoy that movie because I I think he did a great job in that film and it's uh, very strange where he goes to these 12 step meetings to try to control his uh, his compulsion to kill and uh, and somebody figures out who he is yeah yeah and I thought that was very interesting. And the hereditary aspect of his... I'm giving a spoiler here for those who haven't seen the film, that his daughter is also a serial killer. And uh, Well, there goes that after. Well, here you go. Yeah. So there's you, a there's a film
2: out uh, recently called The Cloth Hitch Killer.
0: I haven't seen that one. was it?
2: It's uh, um, a serial killer uh, finds somebody... That he is compatible with, and he starts a family, and he shuts it down, but he has kept all of the memorabilia. As, as the case we're discussing, uh, our uh, perpetrator took mementos, uh, trinkets uh, from the cases, from the people he uh, he assaulted or killed, and so. The uh, as his children grow up one of them starts finding all these Boy. little
0: tidbits <laughs> gee dad gee <laughs> dad
2: are you Are you this uh, this forgotten serial killer it's a very good little film
0: I'll uh, have to catch that the, the, one
2: but, but, but the fella stopped uh, his crime spree because his focus shifted into
0: being normal uh, yeah I haven't had that shift yet well you've never been normal bro <laughs> that's true really no, no, I haven't. But it's not my fault. Blame my cousin Arnie. Yeah, you 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 are the quintessential Abbey Normal. Abby Normal? Who the heck is Arnie? My cousin Arnie, he's the one, bless his heart, who when I was an infant, tossed me into the air and there was a pipe there. Not the kind of smoke, but the kind of you know plumbing pipe, and smashed my head into it. Is that right? Yeah. So that's what did it. that's what did it. Uh, oh. according to the neurologist, uh, my little infant brain rewired itself after the impact and my brain processes information entirely different than any normal brain on the planet. I don't know the difference because it's the only brain I have. Cousin Arnie's pipe. Yeah, and you know this is the weird thing. I don't remember any of this because I was an infant. But bless his heart, cousin Arnie, who I love dearly, apologizes to me every time he sees me. Oh, wow. I mean, this is I mean, he's like in his 80s now and still every time he sees me he brings it up. It's okay, Arnie. I forgive you. Don't forgive him. Take it back now. Take it back. Yeah, I Don't forgive him. No, it's it's okay. Let him, let him sweat. You know, I always heard the story. It wasn't until I was in my 40s, or 50s or whatever that I went to a neurologist. And uh, said, did you realize you had a massive front temporal uh, lobe uh, brain injury in an infancy? I uh, know. After the exam, took my brain out and, you know, examined it. And I said, well, I always heard the story. But I didn't know, you know, how much of that was true. does mean they
1: took your brain out
0: of it? Yeah, well, no, what they actually did, for those who are interested in this type of thing, is they, you know, like an EEG where they hook the things up to your brain and read your brain waves? Yeah. They had a little portable one, and they put it on, uh, like, on my belt, and they put these things in my head, and then... Uh, uh, wired me up and I wore it for a week and they checked all my brain waves and all that stuff and said you're nuts. <laughs> Thank
2: you. Well, I'm glad I came to the show.
0: Yeah. <laughs> see, you see oh, well, how much you can learn. That.
2: So we have medical medical proof that the,
0: that you're it you're masochism. Yes, and but this is the part I like the best. Is usually if you have a psychiatric evaluation or this type of evaluation, they don't tell you, they don't show you the actual report because they figure most people will freak out because they won't understand the language or something. But they figured that, you know, because of what I did for a living in my background, that I'd be, you know, cool with it. Did, a yeah, a disc jockey. Yeah, they figured that that's works. proof right there that he's out of his friggin' mind. <laughs> so, yeah. It says, I'm the only person I know medically diagnosed as charming. It says, primary personality affectation. Charming. That's <laughs> my diagnosis. I'm we'll, be, uh, we'll be back in a minute to, to continue this fest That's right. Discussion. We'll be back with, uh, with Mike. Not the other mic, but this mic on mic on True Crime Uncensored at Outlaw Radio in 60 seconds. Be right back. smoking, drinking, interrupting obsession with you 24 hours a day on any phone or device. And it's all free. Just go to your friendly
1: app store and search for Outlaw Radio. Then look for the red letters on the sign with the bullet holes in it and download it. It's free. Listen free on the road, in your car, at the beach, or in your backyard. It's all free from Outlaw Radio. This is Buddy Twist saying good night from Hollywood.
0: Back to true crime, uncensored. uncensored. I've heard of it. Yeah, what's the rest? With Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. What about right over Squeaky over here? <laughs> Squeaky? <laughs> Squeaky? Squeaky from? from? Yeah. Squeaky from? That's Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact-checker. You know, Mike, uh, our guest is Mike, but i got to do a quick plug for my own books. Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. I'm entitled to be able to plug my own books on this show. You are. Just get it out of the way. Get it out of the way. Okay. What's my latest one? (laughs) Uh, Betrayal in Blue. Oh, that's right. Betrayal in Blue, the true story of the cocaine cops of the NYPD. They weren't afraid of being arrested because they were the cops. (laughs) That's right. Criminals of the squad car. Yeah. Yep. Uh, they're getting, being paid, what, uh, 13000 a year to be cops and 8000 a week to provide protection for the Dominican drug cartel. Wise career move. And it uh, was just great for him for a while until it all unraveled, one of the biggest scandals ever in the history of the NYPD. And it was written with Ken Urell, the second most corrupt cop in the history of the NYPD, Frank C. Gerardo Jr., and the legendary Burl Bear. Uh, prior to that, it's still available, is a taste for murder. Yes, The woman's husband dies. It appears to be natural causes, but she's convinced it's murder. She gets hold of the cops and says, it's not natural causes, it's murder. And they finally believe her. They follow up on all of her clues and arrest her for murder. (laughs) What a dumb woman. (laughs) Oh, come on. Not that I want her to get away with it, but that's, that's just really extreme. Just nag the cops until they investigate you. She's uh, currently uh, large. She looks like Pizza the Hut now. (laughs) She I mean, she was hot at one time. That was uh, was, that was a Mel Brooks joke from. uh, Yeah, from Spaceballs. Spaceballs. Yeah, Yeah. I like Spaceballs. Well, that's nice. That's nice. I I like cheese balls, but
2: that's another story.
0: (laughs) We got cheese puffs, Mike. If you were here, you could have some of our cheese puffs. This table is crowded with all manner of snacks. We have. uh, I mean, we're we're single-handedly supporting the Frito Lay company. only lay I'm getting and uh, <laughs> it's all delicious stuff and noisy too as uh, you'll hear when we crunch, start eating crunch, them crunch. do you guys uh, do you guys eat snacks when you do your podcast we
1: don't um, we are in two different locations when we record so uh, we don't have the ability I'm sure if we were in the same room recording we might be tempted to take a little snack break or
0: something along the way we don't take a break we just eat the snacks while we do the show <laughs> it's to make the audience jealous, we have cheese puffs and you don't. So well, you should
1: probably get hers as a sponsor, or Frito Lay, or somebody.
0: I think. Who do we have sponsoring us now? We have. Uh, uh, what is it called? I can't remember. Sorry, at the beginning of the show. We tell you what it is. It's. Uh, it's nobody. No, it's somebody. We have. We figured it out before you got here. Bat figured out that of the forty-eight dollars we've earned so far in the past couple of weeks, uh, he gets thirty some of it, and uh, thirty-eight, and, and I get ten bucks. I get two fifty then. Yeah, something like that. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll work it out. And I get buckets. Yeah, that's right. You do. You got High Cox Polovinic. It's our new sponsor. Do uh, you guys have sponsors on your show, Mike? Uh, yeah, we for the most part we do. For the most part, we I mean, like have some episodes, that they go, "We don't want anything to do with that one."
1: Well, no. I mean, if you know, if somebody comes to us and they are a reputable company and, you know, sometimes we lot of sponsors. If, if for some reason there's something that we don't endorse or, you know, we think...
0: Like it's someone selling we silencers?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you know, silencers, that kind of thing. Um, we probably wouldn't have them on, but uh, no Frito-Lay deals or anything yet.
0: Uh, well, Frito-Lays is because Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, Uh, He kindly contributes these snacks to the program.
2: Yes, and they get munched today and at Poker Wednesdays. Oh, so that's
0: why there's so many of them. Yes. we also have poker games here.
2: Uh, A a silly aside, Uh, many years ago, two fellas went to uh, the manufacturers of Cheetos and said, hey, we're going to do a cartoon, and one of our characters loves your Cheetos. Can we use it? And they said, No. So now South Park uh,
0: has Cartman eating cheesy poofs. <laughs> so and uh, they... Well, that, that's like E.T. When they went to uh, M&M and said, could we want uh, yeah, you know, so the E.T. E. to eat M&M's, they said no. So they went with Reese's Pieces. <laughs> Reese's was very happy about yes, that. They were. Yeah, they were delighted. At, uh, so maybe you could do that. So have, You know, have you guys eat Reese's Pieces on your show and pick up some extra bucks. Now, how do you guys coordinate? Now, see, Howard uh, and I and Mark, we're all sitting in the, around the same table in the, the Lighten Up Lounge in Matt Allen's backyard. Um, in an 1876 Virginia, Virginia City-style City style bar with real liquor, but we don't, I don't drink it, as a rule.
2: None of us do, actually.
0: No. What's it here for, then? You have a taste once in a while, have Once in, a once in it's I'll rare. taste it. Yeah. We had that Bloody Mary. Well, Matt had that Bloody Mary competition. That was good. That was good. They you know, just had all these different kinds of Bloody Marys all afternoon long until the entire cast and crew passed out. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was quite an adventure. You should have been here for that one. How do you guys coordinate what you're going to do, being as you're in two different uh, locations?
1: Yeah, it, that's the challenge of having a podcast. You know, you guys being all on one spot makes it a little bit easier, and it's easier maybe to get the audio where you want it. Versus when you have two people in different locations, we're doing it over the internet, over Skype usually, and you know you have to coordinate the sound to get the sound quality just right, and um, it's it's a little bit of a challenge that way. But uh, a lot of podcasters do do it that way and have guests that way, so we've been lucky enough to. Be able to do it right and and have pretty good success doing
0: it that way well you guys really get into it like I mean, this golden state killer thing i mean you devoted run an entire season to, to the case which means there has to be you guys obviously put work into this thing unlike us that we just rely on the guests to show up and then grill them like a swordfish uh how do you coordinate your content
1: well we've been fortunate enough to have access to a lot of different police reports and investigators and witnesses and family members of victims and, and things like that that are willing to come on and help us uh, tell the stories. And, you know, that's primarily where all the content came from was, was this wealth of stuff that we have access to, and we've been able to transition that into, into lengthy podcast episodes. And so far the formula has been pretty
0: good for us. Yeah, no kidding. Plus the two books that have uh, come out from Wild Blue Press—one on the Zodiac and the other on the Golden State Killer—which are both now available. I assume in both paperback and uh, ebook. Yeah, uh,
1: paperback and ebook.
0: What a—I mean, now now your your resume is getting better all the time. You know, <laughs> except for the Cheetos, you don't have those on there. But you know, this is this is good for you. How do people hear your podcast? Well, they can find us
1: on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, and just search for Criminology, and you will find us on there.
0: And see, so if you're listening already on iTunes to True Crime Uncensored on LR Radio Live.com, uh you can just, little, probably a little thing in there on iTunes where it says related podcasts, similar podcasts, or you know, a podcast you may be interested in. And you'll be able to find them there. So, if you're a loyal listener of our program, you can find their uh, podcast. Do we have any of those? Uh, one or two. Oh, uh, two. I had a friend once in England who. Uh, <laughs> but he died. She, listened. <laughs> she moved to Ireland, I he think. He jumped off the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't no. take it anymore. Can't take it anymore. Uh, and uh, Dan Zupanski listens. He's a loyal listener, so that's two. I, I listen to Dan a lot. Yeah. Only because he has our guests on. By Early, him. and you can find out what to ask him that he didn't. That's correct. <laughs> You're no dumbbell. I know. It used to be, but we uh, trained him. No, you trained me well. Yeah.
2: Um, I would like to talk about uh, an aspect of this case that has thoroughly fascinated me, and that's how they caught the person they think is the perpetrator. I want to talk about what they did and any of the ethical, uh, moral issues that come along with it.
1: Well, it, it it was all done with DNA, um, sort of a new era in...
2: Uh, right, but it wasn't phase. a traditional, you know, let's match the DNA up kind of thing. They did something quite creative.
1: Yeah, so they, they took the DNA from the suspect. He had left lots and lots of, of semen at, at many of his crime scenes, unfortunately, and they had plenty of good samples to use. And they got creative, and the lead investigator, Paul Holes, who had a background with DNA work, decided that he would enlist the help of a genetic genealogist.
2: Yeah, and Barbara.
1: Yes, Barbara Ravener. And they loaded that DNA into GEDMatch, uh, uh, and from there they were able to come up with some uh, relatives. And then they, it was just a question of connecting the dots and finding the right person that w- was connected to them and lived in California, and they, that's how they arrived at Joseph D'Angelo. And uh, from there, you know, the, the legalities and, and things of that nature, before they arrested him, they had looked at the pros and cons of, you know, a legal challenge based on how they were able to find him, and they wanted to make sure that there was no... Uh, that their I's were dotted and their T's were crossed, there would be no way for them to be challenged about the legality of it, and they felt that there was no uh, way it could be challenged, so they felt comfortable in doing it that way and arresting him that way, Um, and it remains to see when it goes to court what's going to happen, but, um, uh, you know, my thinking personally is if you had a crime scene and you deposit your DNA, whether it's through blood loss or semen and you discard it, it's the same as if you discard a piece of chewing gum in uh um. public. It's it's public property and if uh. that is matched to a crime, if that crime matches to somebody that has their DNA in a database and it comes back to you, well, you know, so be it. Um, you know, I'm all for it. I think, you know, most people support these kinds of new methods for solving crimes.
2: So in layman's term, what they did is, uh, is if you've watched uh, television, or they tell them in the last few years, there's these commercials for submitting your DNA, and you get back a profile of your heritage. And then along with that, you can take that information and uh, associate relatives that you didn't know in a family tree and what the police did is pretend essentially that the submission was from an individual that wanted this information when it in fact was the DNA of of the suspect and then they associated people that had related genetic markers in a family tree and Barbara took that information and made a family tree and traced the history of that DNA through the family tree to suspects that they could then go and look at Uh, One of the things that I found interesting is that the police had an idea that this might be the perpetrator, and then they followed him around and took samples surreptitiously of his DNA from uh, discarded uh, locations or trash, eventually coming up with the profile that matched this person to the crimes. Nice trick. Well, I think think this is a unique use of the technology that's out there. And
1: in just in the last eight months, since then, you've seen probably a dozen crimes solved that way, and there's probably going to be dozens more coming soon. Um, you know, one case that comes to mind is is the case of April Marie Tinsley, which was an eight-year-old girl who was killed back in 1988. Uh, there, that case was solved the exact same way, and the man responsible for that crime was arrested earlier this year, and he just made a plea deal, and he's in prison for life now. Um, so that case settled pretty quickly, so there was no legal challenge there, and uh, hopefully the same happens with the Golden State Killer case.
2: Uh, has Joseph uh, uh, pleaded, uh, pleaded not guilty?
1: Uh, he hasn't entered a plea as far as I understand it no, he uh, as of it now. Um, it doesn't seem like he's interested in taking a plea deal. It seems like he'll probably milk it. Until he has to go to court for it. The court proceedings could be, a trial could be years away, at least a couple of years away, and he's already 73 years old, uh, so the, the chances are before he is ever found guilty or certainly executed, uh, assuming that he would be um, found guilty and, and sentenced to death, he'd probably be dead already.
2: Um, yeah, well, then he's not going to get executed. I mean, it's just not going to happen in California.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's...
2: it's he it's, may it's sit on death row for his life.
1: He's not getting out of prison alive one way or the other. So whether he pleads, he you know, takes a plea deal, he probably has nothing to lose personally by not taking a plea deal. But one way or another, I'm, you know, it's satisfying to know he's not getting out of that prison alive.
0: Yeah. That's comforting. You know, every once in a while police will do things... <laughs> Excuse me. That are clever that don't work out for them. Uh, one particular case I'm thinking of, the uh, perpetrator, or suspected perpetrator, said, "I'm not talking anymore. I want to see a lawyer." They send in a cop in a suit and says, "Hi, I'm your counselor. Tell me all about the situation." Well, that <laughs> that's not ethical, and they did kind of get wrist slapped for that for attempting to fool the uh, the guy into thinking he's talking to his attorney. That wasn't very smart of them. So that
2: any information obtained would be inadmissible, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Plus, they got in trouble for it. I talked to the detective involved. He said, Well, we thought it was a good idea at the time. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't. That wasn't a good idea at that time or any time. Uh, You do this podcast every week. And you have these overarching stories that go for the entire season. What's next? Well, we're we're
1: sort of in a hiatus right now. We're getting ready to um, make an announcement about what we're going to be doing next after the new year. Um, so it's going to be a little bit different than what we've done so far. But uh, I think people, based on what they've told us, will be happy with what we're going to be doing. We just it's going to be a little bit of a surprise that we're going to be announcing soon. So
0: how much, uh, Pre-broadcast time, you put into this thing because it's going to cover an entire season. Uh, How much before you start do you start working?
1: Well, we we usually take you know anywhere from one to three months off in between seasons because it's quite a it's quite a process to go through reports and find material and interview people that are going to be on the podcast. We do a lot of interviews with with people. Um, So all of that takes a lot of time to coordinate and complete and then the writing process, um, you know, it can take several weeks and we're a two-man operation, so, um, you know, we're we're looking at one to three-month time periods between seasons so we can get all that done
0: fantastic it's a great show it's called criminology that's the podcast with mike and mike and we have one of the mics right here on mike thank you so much for being our guest today we hope nice. you enjoyed yourself and we'll be listening to you and you can listen to us
1: yes you can i appreciate it thanks for having me on. you bet yeah. hey bye, bro bye. yeah what's next
0: magic matt allen and the demons of decadence live from the lighten up lounge right here on our radio Live.com.